Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Uh, but look, it was it was good to kind of be putting it on the radar of of people that are making decisions as a way of kind of um, presenting a new narrative. Um, and but it was also recognizing that at this stage, the SPI was like quite new in terms of what data we're actually able to include. I think um, a national SPI will only be sort of the most valuable, the most influential once we can get to kind of that local government area level of granularity across all of Australia. Great to be back with you here, as always. At Humans of Purpose, we're always trying to learn more about you, our listeners, and how we can improve the podcast. This is why we run our annual podcast survey. It takes about five minutes to complete, and it's what I use during the off-season as my podcast improvement guide for the season to come. We've decided to extend the survey until Friday this week, close of business, to let you get your last-minute entries in. As of today, prizes are still up for grabs for completing the survey. Just hit the link in our show notes to participate. Beyond sponsoring the podcast, another way to support the show and enjoy some great perks if you're a keen listener is to become a Humans of Purpose member. Perks include access to every episode a few days early, ad-free of course, an audio note giving you more context on each guest and the episode, a full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from each episode and contact details for each guest featured and our brokered introduction service too. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. We are, of course, proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth, and they're doing a great job of managing all our marketing and socials for a great cause. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Megan Weir to the podcast. Megan is a Senior Research Fellow and Acting Research and Evaluation Director at the Centre for Social Impact at UNSW. Megan is doing some fascinating research into measuring social progress across different OGAs or local government areas in Australia and uncovering some incredible insights and learnings that have already influenced and will continue to influence social policy making here. I enjoyed talking to Megan as she's equally committed to doing robust research and also ensuring that this is applied research that changes things for better on the ground. It should be noted that we are huge fans of the Centre for Social Impact here at Humans of Purpose and previous affiliated guests include Joe Barraquette, Christian Siebert and Gemma Carey. This conversation continues that proud lineage of CSI guests, so feel free to check out these previous episodes if interested. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Megan as much as I did. Megan, I am really happy to have you here, and I'm glad that we've started our day right with a good coffee, and uh, you don't want to know what I'm drinking, but what you're drinking looks mysterious and cool. It's it's water. I can't... Uh, <laughs> I, I just... There's like a slight gelatinousness to whatever's going on in your bottle that I'm really interested. Yeah, it's um, it's embarrassing. It's age-related. It's... Uh, Is it Metamucil? Maybe. Yeah. Look, nothing <laughs> wrong with... Like, Metamucil, just... I realised the other day that I've turned into my mum, where it's like... I'll, um, you know, Saturday night, have the shower at seven o'clock, put on my flannel PJs, <laughs> top it with a metamucil. 
there's it's nothing a good wrong, life. Nothing wrong with it following proud family traditions. Exactly. Um, but there's also nothing wrong with good gut health. So <laughs> no sponsorship, no affiliation. But if, and if, if it's flavoured, all the better. Exactly. It, it, should, it should have nice flavouring. <laughs> I look. There's so much for us to talk about. Uh, lovely to spend time with you and meet you at the uh, Connecting Up conference recently and at the Amplifier booth at CSI. And I think the work that you're doing is extraordinary. Um, Learn so much about your your um, study areas, your history um, during dinner, which was nice. It was. I think for our, for our audience, um, I'd love to hear a bit from you, sort of how you got started, um, where you found your interest in research and social policy and sort of how it all began for you career-wise. Career-wise. I think um, it was really funny preparing for this, thinking about where I got to, and I have no idea. Like, <laughs> it's just been kind of like a series of, I guess, not, I wouldn't say accidents, but just like taking opportunities as they come. Um when I was four, I told my mom that I wanted to be bad. So I don't know if I'm like living up to that. <laughs> Wanting to be bad. But I was also like a principal's daughter. So I think that was very much that kind of you know, got to be all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, a, re- a rebellious um, principal's daughter who ends up in academia. Could be an excellent it, it, play. It's a real like mystery novel right there, how that all plays out. <laughs> um, I think uh, just in terms of career, I have really valued thinking about um, – what are the values in terms of what I want to do? And I think, you know, throughout my life, it's, it's, I've always had a very kind of keen um, distaste for, frustration with, um, I would say like injustice or inequality. Um, and so how that kind of plays out has changed as like my various philosophies and beliefs have changed over the years. But um, I started out wanting to be a psychologist after having some good psychology therapy myself, um, feeling like... We all need that. Absolutely. I, I mean, like, make psychology more accessible in Australia. And everyone Especially should at the moment. do it. Absolutely. And we I think can talk about that later. Totally. <laughs> I could talk about that for a long time. But, yeah, I had this, like, you know, I had a positive experience with um, a psychologist and so I was kind of like, okay, that could be cool for uni. I just assumed I would go to uni, didn't really know what, though. Um, but it was really during my second year that I um, had the opportunity to do some volunteer research assistance work and that, I, you know, it was sticking, like, electrodes on people's faces. So Ooh, not that's a, pretty fun. It, it, it was cool. You I know, mean, you got to scrub people. Like us, <laughs> yeah. maybe. Um, like it was it was, I think, just that uh opportunity to go, this is like we we ask questions of the world and we find interesting ways to try and understand it. And <sighs> that is beautiful. Yeah. And I think that's like what I love about research. And it was through that that I kind of went, ah, oh, like I think I want to be doing research instead. So um when you finish a psychology degree, your options are kind of, if you're going in the psychology path, is either you try and get in a master's or you try and do a PhD. And so that's what I did. Um, I was looking at developmental psychology, this idea of emerging adulthood. What does it mean to be a young person today? And kind of through accident, I started a research assistant role um, halfway through in drug and alcohol policy. So that kind of like gave me some really good opportunities and, um, you know, connections I moved to Sydney after that, after originally being in Brisbane, um, doing a postdoc um, straight after my PhD, which is um, not something that everyone gets to do. And so I think, you know, even though I'm not in that space anymore, I, I try to kind of like hold gratitude for that experience. Just for the less first, what is a postdoc? Postdoc is uh, you'll kind of finish your PhD and then it's your chance to go, what now? Um, is it like a fellowship? A little bit, yeah, except you're kind of – you're usually working on someone else's project, but there'll be like a specific part of it that you're kind of taking ownership for. 
um, it was not at all what I expected. Like you kind of feel like you finish your PhD and you've made it. Yeah. Um, but you're really just like a slightly more senior research assistant. How I can tell my wife this. This is great. It's really uplifting Look, stuff, I, Megan. I think no. I think it's good though. Like at the time, you get frustrated with it, but. Um, you don't want to be thrown in the water without kind of your life raft and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I think um, there are, there are various degrees, and it depends on of, of like how much control or how much independence you have in a postdoc. Depends yeah. on your supervisors and things like that. Well, I think a lot of um, working life depends on your relationship with your manager or supervisor. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I like I wish we had, and maybe you have good questions about this, but like, how is it you get? What questions do you ask during kind of like the interview process to try and get to the heart of that really quickly? Because you get I've sold. got one that I'm obsessed with. I'll tell you my favourite question at the moment. Yeah. And um, this, for anyone listening who might have heard it, um, I used it at a recent mentoring event thing. But it's the quote, um, tell me how you spend your time and mm. I'll tell you who you are. Okay. So I think it's – I can't even remember who said it. It's probably one of the Stoics who I quite like. But um, instead of getting people to go through a whole range yeah. of behavioural questions or situational analysis mm. or kind of weird, you know, um, tell me uh, what is one thing that uh, has uh, previously uh, made you fail the jobs? Give or, me an example. Know, give me an example yeah. of uh, yeah. how you manage conflict with a colleague. Yeah. that's This is a question about um, like, you know, don't ask what people are passionate about. Ask what they do. Mm like on a daily basis yeah. and that that for me is the most interesting sort of thing like yeah cuz yeah. you, you can tell me that you're um you know uh passionate about aboriginal rights and well-being but if, if you're not have, doing anything if you're not doing anything yeah like, like that's that's okay yeah. for some people but it, uh, i mean a sense of who you are kind of comes from that mm, like are yeah. you actually manifesting your passion are yeah. you are you living up to the things that you talk about yeah yeah, yeah. it's um and, you know, like this will probably wind in and out a little bit, sort of uh, growing up in a Christian home and then like um, having my own version of faith that I have now that's like a bit more separated from, I guess, organised religion. Um, but, you know, faith without deeds is dead was something that kind of gets talked about Very a fair good. bit. And I, I feel like that's like a really important touchstone for both. When did you move out of that world? Um, look, it was when I started my PhD um, and it was really kind of my first experience of being not the minority, but, like, not being surrounded by people that were like me. So, like, white, straight, middle class. Um, was it a church community? Um, that I was primarily in, yeah. So I, like, grew up going to Lutheran schools and so I was kind of used to being in the majority in that sense. Um, and, you know, like, I think I'm, I'm grateful to my parents in the ways that they practice their faith is definitely not, I would say, like, the kind of fundamentalist kind of thing. Yeah, they're, they're still very kind of, I would say, connected to... Um, Regular society folk. Yeah, yeah, and like a sense of fairness and things like that. Um, but, yeah, it was it was for me kind of going, okay, so I've been in this like community that we'll talk about, I think at the, at the time, you know, very much like, you know, knowing people who were gay was just like this kind of exotic thing, which is so terrible <laughs> in reflection. But like um, actually kind of becoming friends with and, and just having day-to-day with people who are in same-sex relationships and that being normal um, having that as kind of like um, you see the impacts of kind of like what those beliefs are. And, you know, it's really funny I, I think about that now in terms of my own social policy work is like it's not about necessarily what you say the intent is in terms of like a policy or your belief, but it's what the actual outcome is and what's the impact on the people that that policy is being aimed at. Yeah. And so just recognising that, you know, like so you oppose marriage equality and it's like, okay, so for like – a person who is Christian who 
isn't tr- wanting to marry someone of the same gender, it's like no skin off their nose whether it's legal or not, right? Yeah, but no it makes loss. a huge yeah. difference for for like my friends that I love dearly that were mm. able to do that. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that was just like a really interesting. It, it was it was a point that I kind of started questioning. I guess the um, not necessarily like what my ultimate belief faith was, but how it was that that kind of played out and the ways in which like um, church can kind of provide rules and structures. And I was suddenly in this environment where I didn't necessarily have that anymore. It yeah. didn't fit. But maybe that's a really good pathway for life. Like yeah. maybe you start in an environment of structure and kind of helps you form and become Absolutely. like a, I'm not a psychologist, but like maybe like a um, well-formed adult. Absolutely, And, and then you yeah. get to sort of discover all the things that were kind of you know, maybe you want to do differently yourself. Yeah, and I think what's really funny is that, like, you know, my PhD on this idea of emerging adulthood, it was like people are spending their early 20s discovering who they are, working out what they believe. And I was, like, so critical of this theory because science reasons, there's not sort of the stuff that backs it up. But that was the process I was going through. You know, like I met my now husband in my second year of the PhD and, um, you know, he was, like, a really important person to kind of – you know, uh, be be looking at sort of like what is the life that I thought I would have versus like what is the life that I actually want now. And, yeah. Um, the PhD was an amazing space to actually be asking those questions. I'm sure it was he also a PhD. He was, so yeah. So was he also asking the big questions of the world? Absolutely. And it, it was even funny where I was kind of like I was developmental psychology, he was social psychology. Oh, this is just like it was, lovely yeah, fairy tale. We Romeo and Juliet of Beautiful. the UQ psych. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, to go through that process together was really good because. What are your What is your banter like? Is it like heavily analytical kind of policy problems? It's really not. <laughs> it is so silly, and that's what I love about him. Um, but yeah, like I think to to have someone that thinks so deeply about the world and like understands the work that I do and genuinely kind of um, supports and celebrates it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and they would get they get it as well because yeah. it's, it's such a different system. So like it I is. mean I, you know a lot of the listeners might know and you know that my wife's PhD um medicine and whatnot and um like even though I came from a family with doctors in mm-hmm. it and around it um and specialists like you don't understand what it's like in the system especially no. as a female. Yeah. Um like hearing from a female what that experience is yep. like until you're kind of partnered with someone who's in it. Yeah. It's just a foreign the you, day don't, you don't day. get it at all. Yeah. How hard it is and Yeah. You've obviously you, learned not to ask when you're going to finish. Totally. You just don't no, <laughs> don't touch that at no. all. Uh, like why are you um yeah why why are you going here why are you, like when are you there's no like <laughs> cuz you know like for me um I probably appear a bit loose but I love routine and structure. Yeah. Um, so I like to know what time is this happening, what yeah. time is that happening. And, like, I'm that guy who's just always 15 to 20 minutes early yeah. um, and she's a person who's always 15 to 20 minutes late, late. and can never tell you when stuff is happening because she doesn't know because yeah. it's a PhD. So yeah. Yeah. I have had to work really hard on me just, like, and my flexibility yeah. Yeah, mentally and emotionally. Yeah, and I think that's something that's really interesting um, both in my own experience of kind of going to full-time work halfway through the PhD mm. Um, and also friends of mine that have sort of gone into PhDs after working full-time for a while. Mm. Um, I think, like, the drive and the energy and the attitude that you take to it is totally different if you've kind of been in the workforce, where I was kind of like, um, you know, third year on, I was like, I just need to knock this over. Like, I've got other stuff going on. Um, Whereas I think uh, if you're kind of in the full-time PhD space, which is like a lovely, I I guess, like, comforting cocoon in many ways, especially if you come straight from undergrad like I did, 
Um, but what can happen, I think, is that you just get you tie yourself in knots. I think you could destroy yourself as totally. a human doing yeah. a fully academic PhD. Yeah, like because um, we we joked before about the the, the idea of pracademic, mm. which is ridiculous, but um. You know, like that idea of combining practical work work with research work. Yeah. Not saying so that was – I didn't mean it to sound that way. No. But, you know, like actual um, – Hands-on, hands literal on, in some yeah. cases. So you know what I yeah. mean. Um, like that is an important balance. Yeah. And I know for Louise, like that's been really important to actually be going into clinic, doing some yeah. procedures and then also doing the, the thinking work. Yeah, absolutely. It's like if you asked me to spend uh, three to five years just researching a topic, I know I would go insane probably in year one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe the first six months even. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think kind of leading to the work that I do at the Centre for Social Impact now, that's what I actually really enjoy and like about the kind of work that we do where – um, it's applied. It's so applied yeah. and um, relevant. It's real. Yeah, and it's you know I think there are in some ways um, you know we were talking about this before in terms of like what is it that you do to have impact in the work that you do in kind of this this role. And yep. There's there's some things that you need to give up in the sense of kind of like um, it's not that the work we do isn't rigorous, but you're maybe like not spending as long doing the kind of super in depth qualitative analysis and you writing mean, your you, journal articles. Megan, you know the statistics about how many people read published Actual journal articles. Journals and it's like two readers on average, and one of them is your mum. So, and how long does it take you to to get it out? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's like. Because I think a lot about you know what is the impact of the work that I'm doing mm. and like what is the what is the trade off between inputs and outputs yeah, right absolutely and if any rational person did those back of the envelope calculations in academia um, research might not happen yeah it's terrifying yeah and I think that's like a really um, yeah being like I do question anything that is making sense or needs more background but like that's a huge challenge for academia at the yeah. moment um, universities in general like. Um, in unis, like teaching is kind of the the generator of income, but then you also mm. kind of apply for competitive um, schemes, grant funding, yeah, like not. Australian Research Council or National Health and Medical and look, Research. My comments by no means saying that that stuff is important because it is fundamentally what's yeah. taking science and society yeah. forward. But I just think the way the lens that you have at Centre for Social Impact, mm. where it is about. Um, like applied research yeah. in science. Yeah. So the work that you're doing might have a different level of rigour, yeah. but it actually gets shit done. And who, you, who you're communicating to I think is really, really important there mm. as well. Like I think, you know, there's there's a place for journal articles, um, but um, there's also a place for writing, you know, 20-page reports that have really clear recommendations. And there's also a place for a really well-written conversation article. <laughs> also, yeah, because that's what gets people interested. Yeah, because the regular and policymakers mm. and uh, senior people in society, that's what they will often read. Yeah. It's like a, it's a, you know, the age or it's the guardian or yeah. the, the conversation or maybe you just wrote a really great tweet that yeah. resonated um, and reached, you know, tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands yeah. of people. Yeah, and, and it I made think sense. I think that can often be a tell as well is that it can be comforting to use the background noise of different words and sort of um, be talking about the limitations first as a way of protecting ourselves, but you're also like super kind of um, diluting or, um, yeah, just like hiding your actual message in that. And so I think it's it's that's been a journey for me is learning to kind of go, okay, like what's my main point or my main dot here? Yeah. Um, and recognizing that it's like not perfect and people can ask me backup questions yeah. if they need to, but what's like the one takeaway that I want to get with this? What are the nuts? Yeah. You know, you can write a, um, a hundred thousand, um, word paper, yep. but 
just tell me in a sense, like if you can't create an elevator pitch or a sentence out of it, um, it might not ever get, it's just people don't get it. Exactly, yeah. Um, and I think there is a beauty to simplicity in that sense, despite um, the importance of rigor. Mm. You strike me as a person who would be like quite comfortable with the notion of the modern academic, <laughs> um, somebody who sort of can work in both worlds, yep. you know, can enjoy the um, the the writing, the, the speaking, the um, the kind of public side of academia, but also the the, the consulting mm. need, needs and demands that you might have to actually fund work yep. and deliver work. Um, how does that sit with you and sort of would that be fair? Yeah, I think it, I think it is fair and um, I'm at a point where like it makes me feel nice to hear someone describe me that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you are, you, For me, you are like the archetypal uh, modern academic and like the only person I think of who is similar to you is Jimmy Carey. Right who, you yeah. know, has been a really big part of my career, yeah. especially moving to CSI. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's definitely um, partly personality. Um, you know, all my drama p- training is clearly paying off. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of training there. Psychology, drama, I wouldn't want to be in a negotiation with you. <laughs> It'll be very dramatic and involve the use of props. Um, <laughs> no, it, and my deep-seated fears and regrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll ask a lot of questions starting with, I wonder if. Um, Tell me about your relationship with your mother. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, that I think it's, yeah, it's it's been a, a really interesting process of, um, again, going back to kind of like what is it that you're trying to achieve from the work that you're doing. Um, and, you know, at the moment I guess I'm kind of recognising that I'm in this period where I can really benefit and benefit from and build on skills that come from, you know, wider communication. So presenting at conferences, doing the occasional tweet. Even uh, sitting in a booth at a tech conference, talking it, to people like me. Exactly. Well, this is Not how, that bad. This, no, and it's how you meet people and new people and you get out of your bubble. Um, and yeah, I think that is like a really good way of actually getting a sense of how your work is landing as well. Yeah. Does it make sense to um, other folk? Is it actually useful? And yeah. I think um, especially in kind of the work that I care about, which is um, I would say like using data or using research to help people make better decisions, especially organisations. And so, um, you know, I can't make that claim if I'm not actually working with the people that I say yeah. I want to be helping. And I, I quite like, you know, um, you got you got sat next to the right person at that dinner that night because... I'm obsessed with health and well-being um, and, you know, went to Bhutan and, yeah. you know, sort of had a look at GNH and a whole range of different frameworks around all that kind of thing, spent time at um, DHS working on yeah. health and social policy. Yeah. So we, we kind of just – it was great to sit next to you and hear you talking about your work in the Social Progress Index. Yeah. Um, and also we talked about Amplify too, which we can touch on a bit later. Yeah. But tell me about your interest in sort of like human health and well-being mm. um, at – individual and population level mm. and how that kind of how, – how you got onto the social progress index as a sort of keystone of your research. Yeah. Um, look, I think the, the the health and well-being thing is um, partly like I, I would say the drug and alcohol policy led to that a little bit in terms of, you know, I was doing this work evaluating the evidence for medicinal cannabis, which we also talked about as well. Yeah, and I love it. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's something that hasn't necessarily like worked for me but also that hasn't not been kind of like – legit kind of um, therapeutically controlled stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think part of that recognition was going, you know, the Therapeutic Goods Administration to kind of evaluate whether 
THC or CBD as like components of of cannabis are good medi- uh, like medicinal properties was that it had to go through this like RCT yeah, yeah. evaluation process. Yeah. And that was like not gelling with what advocates were saying yeah. was really important. Experience exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that was like a really interesting experience for me to kind of see um, who was getting privileged in that conversation, um, whose expertise and um, evidence was kind of seen as legitimate versus kind of just anecdotal. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of safety and efficacy, there are like legitimate stuff around RCTs. Yeah. Like randomized control 100%. trials. But less useful in the social context, though. Exactly. And like, you know, people are going to be using it. So how do you make it safer for them? Yeah. And so that real like harm reduction oh, kind yeah. of thing is really important there as well. So when I moved to Center for Social Impact, um, yeah, there was this opportunity to work on this thing called the Social Progress Index. Um, and what I really love about um, the Social Progress Index or SPI is that it's like proposes this alternative metric for understanding how a society is and community is progressing um, that isn't based on the economy. So like a lot of the time we use um, metrics such as gross domestic product, um, or unemployment. These yeah, are the, the lovely two. wartime measures that are probably outdated by a good 80 years. And were never intended to kind of be indicators of progress as well. And so, but they're like easy to measure, they're easy to quantify. And, um, you know, there's been this longstanding assumption that if GDP was going up, then social progress probably was as well. And but, we've seen the great detachment of those two. Exactly. And how, how you generate um, income as well. Like, you know, you could be privatising prisons, you know, the mining boom in Australia and the impact that's had on the environment and, you know, destruction of sacred sites and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, it might be good for the economy, but it's not necessarily good for, you know. Yeah. In, in, in economics, we would crassly refer to those things as uh, negative externalities. Exactly. And they're just little things that we'll just brush aside and continue on with our measurement methods. But, but yeah. And, and I think that's always funny where we kind of like <laughs> try to control the variance yeah. as much as we can. Yeah. We remove the outliers yeah. Yeah. to tell a particular story. We um, can't measure the destruction of that ancient Aboriginal mine site. So let's just, um, yeah, it's just, we won't put it in this data. It, it wasn't in the equation. Yeah. So. Sorry. Yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting about something like the Social Progress Index because it takes the economy completely out of it. Um, so we can like correlate SPI against GDP if mm-hmm. we really want to. But oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, it's interesting what we see when we look at that in Australia. Um, we can talk about that. Um, but what we are looking at is basically um, how can we get existing data sets to tell us stories about the basic human needs, foundations of well-being, and opportunity for people in this context in Australia across different states and territories. And so we're looking at things like access to shelter, access to basic education, but also things like personal rights and freedom of choice. Um, and so it kind of like spans a, a number of things as well as environmental quality. Um, and so what I really like about that as a framework is um, it offers both kind of like opportunities for discussion because it has what they call like universally important questions. So, you know, we'll say, do people have access to clean drinking water? Do people, you know, have information access to information that can help them understand the world? So it's kind of a bit Maslowian in a way? A little bit, yeah. yeah. So there's definitely that hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Um, but I really, really appreciate that it's also got that opportunity element that's yeah. around like personal rights and inclusion yes, yeah. and things like that because that's also important. Maybe like there's that sixth layer of like the self-actualization there. Exactly. Well. So like what, what are the things that we need as humans to um, develop and progress? Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, this is a global framework and the way it was developed was with um, the intention that, you know, these would be um, ideas or 
questions that were important for any community regardless of their, I guess, economic status. And as they grew or um, became more economically successful, if that's kind of the aim, they were going to be increasingly important questions to kind of consider. And one of the other things that I really like about when we are creating a social progress index is that we're looking for data sources that are focused on outcomes. And so um, this is like my little data nerd pitch, but, you know, when we talk about um, indicators or how we measure things, we've got in, um Inputs, outputs, and outcomes. So you talked inputs, outputs before. Inputs might be like the amount of money that we spend on a particular campaign. Outputs might be how many people watched the ad that we had. But then the actual outcome is what was the behavior change because of that ad campaign. Yes, nice. Very well explained. Thank you. Um, And so it's really the outcomes that we care about because, you know, um, it's that's actually telling you whether it's having the – desired impact. And I think that's the other thing is that we can assume that impact is automatically positive, but there's also negative impact. Yeah. Well, this is part of the whole lexicon difficulty with people bandying around social impact a lot, right? Exactly. Like not all social impact is good social impact. Exactly. (laughs) And intended versus unintended. And, um, you know, like uh, when we work with clients at CSR, we often give an example with um, social impact or like what helped in our initial responses to COVID. And so, you know, things like the WHO guidelines and things like that around mask wearing and hand washing, positive social impact, but also the fact that you can do. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, that's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car or we could finally get that jacuzzi or I could start taking tuba lessons or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. Delivery of coals and also, you know, Netflix like enable people or made it easier for people to stay at home if they were able to. But, you know, Coles and Netflix don't exist to kind of reduce the spread of COVID, right? They exist to make money. And so there's that like unintended positive social impact that exists there. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think if um, streaming services and Coles didn't exist during the pandemic, people would have been a lot worse off. Exactly. And, you know, and I think that's also where we see the really interesting um, divides in equity, Um, you know, around things like delivery services. Um, So, you know, Uber Uber Eats, Eats, stuff like that. Um, And, you know, I wasn't here in Melbourne at the time. but very lucky. The the first lockdown, oh, my gosh. It was was the worst two years of my life by far. It's it's wild. And I think we do need to legitimately. There should be a Royal Commission without question. Yeah. I'm just going to put that on record. Yeah, okay. It's a a disgrace the way it was handled here. Davis 2022. So, look, it's. I'm not an academic, so I can say things without citing myself. on my own platform, but Look, my yeah. view only. Yeah, and but I think there are definitely things that we need to learn from how we've responded to the pandemic. And, um, you know, we were particular people, so like myself and my husband included, we were able to stay at home. We have work that we can do from home. Um, we were able to afford to have things delivered to us, but who is the person actually having to do the delivery? Were they working while they were unwell because they didn't have economic security? A lot of questions like that, and just talking back to some of the... Um, 
you know, drug and alcohol mm. policy background because I think we talked about when we met that I was working at a place called Task Force mm. um, in a head of strategy role and, you know, I wasn't client-facing. But the, the spike in excessive drinking and substance abuse that we saw due to people being forced to stay at home during yep. that time and um, suicides and all these kind of things and self-harm was widely misreported. Uh, we saw it firsthand mm. at a service level yeah. um, and it, it never really made its p- part into the policy conversation. So it was lower than was being reported or higher? There, there were a lot of mixed findings right. um, and a lot of um, vexed questions about how the reporting was being done. Yeah. But all I can say is that at a service level, yeah. what we were seeing was widely representative of what was happening at population level, yeah. did not match what we were seeing in the media. Yeah. And it was horrific yeah. and it wasn't really informing policy at all. Yeah, yeah, and it's like okay, so it's 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 a shit time, right? Like yeah. people are going to be trying yeah. to cope and yeah. it's it's maybe more about like what were the coping mechanisms that they had beforehand. That's right. And what do you turn to that's sort of and this is like the interesting nexus between psychology and, you know, um and and uh, research, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think even, you know, while we're talking about covid, yeah. Yeah. um, you know, the the policy responses um I actually did a piece of work that was kind of aligning each of the federal but also state and territory policy responses to COVID against either the social progress index in terms of like which of like which of the domains of uh, the SPI framework does this policy try to address mm. or is it purely economically focused? Yeah. And you know, there are some instances where just like throwing money at something works. And so like the fact that, you know, people that were on New Start or Job Seeker were suddenly living on a living wage, a livable yeah. wage. Yep. Huge difference. So they're like able to, you know, that has a positive impact on their well-being. They're able to afford their shelter. They're able to afford good food, um, things like that. And you know, that we kind of took that away. Yes, the, the, the come down from that, and I use come down language deliberately. Yeah, um, in the drug me. context. Yeah, like, not considered. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's. Um, that suggests to me, like, you know, we were kind of prioritising the economy in all of that. Oh, we always cer- certainly, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, at, at sort of harking back to um, the whole reason for the social progress index and that being separate from a conversation about GDP, mm. you know, it was so much about just measuring inputs, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think it is that, uh, you know, I, I went when, when we were going through the process of calculating the Australian SPI, we only use secondary data sources. We don't do any data collection ourselves. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a really interesting opportunity to kind of go through and um, test the assumptions about what data exists out there. Yeah, so what were the more interesting data sets you used? I mean, we are shocking at in Australia collecting good environmental statistics. Mm. Like it was really difficult to collect anything. We were using something at the time about the air quality index and we were like, what is that? No one cares about it. <laughs> then the bushfires hit. So um, so I got, I'm guessing you got a bit of play then. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was presenting the SPI at Parliament House when it was like covered in bushfire smoke was just kind of unreal. Good, good for your work. Yeah, exactly. It was demonstrating <laughs> it. And then we went into COVID. So, wow. um, but yeah, I think you know, finding that we're really good at collecting data around criminal activity and imprisonment, that kind of stuff, but that's also very easy to measure because it's yeah. easy to kind of And it's also quantify. like um, it's a bit mechanical, isn't administrative. it? Administrative. Well? Like, yeah, it's yeah. administrative. Yeah. So it's not speaking to the bigger questions of like why are people incarcerated? Exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so where we really struggled to actually find good data was primarily around those opportunity kind of domains. So personal rights, freedom of choice, mm 
like how do you measure that yeah. is really Democratic tricky. participation also might exactly. be Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think that was really interesting. Like we went through a number of sets of consultations, getting kind of like a wish list of what we'd like to include and yep. then actually having to go and see whether something was available. Yeah. Um, Realising that there's like a lot of stuff we wish we had or we assume that we have but we don't actually collect. Yeah. Or it might be that, you know, Victoria is really great at collecting data around recycling behaviours but no other state and territory is collecting that. And so is, we couldn't. Is that the case? Um, some of the environmental ones, I, Victoria is quite that, good. That might be true because sustainability Victoria, yeah. well-funded, do a fantastic job. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But, you know, if that's only been measured in Victoria but not other states and territories, yes. we couldn't include Can't it. compare it. So, yeah. so how do you get around the comparison problem? Yeah, so... Um, well, like you might, so for example, you have good data in yep. Victoria around yep. environment, yep. pollution, et cetera, but you don't in other states and territories. So in that case, we wouldn't include it, okay. which really sucks. Yeah. Um, but, you know... There's with, limitations. To there is limitations, but you also use it as an advocacy opportunity in kind mm-hmm. of going, you know, um, th- there can sometimes be a bit of competitiveness in research. <laughs> really? I say that as if that's like a new <laughs> thing. Um, but it's always this pressure to be creating the new, the the, the shiny. What's your impact factor, Megan? Oh, my, I'm not going to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I tease lawyers my, for that my all the time. I, I don't care at yeah. all. <laughs> um, you know, true love is when you, like, know your partner's Google Scholar <laughs> citation. Is right? narcissism when you know your own H index? <laughs> no, no, exactly, but it's love when it's you know love. the other person's. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think it was, like, Owning, owning that and recognising it's an advocacy opportunity for mm. kind of going, you know, we're spending so many resources in collecting all this data. Yes. When is it actually being used? Yeah. And where can we identify that, you know, these different states and territories are all trying to measure the, kind of the same thing, they're just doing it in slightly different ways. Yep. You're actually limiting yourself and shooting yourself in the foot if you can't do that. Yes. So, like, can we actually get people to kind of pool resources, be collecting things the same way so that we can be using the same data for multiple reasons. And so what strikes me as quite different about the way you approach research as a new academic in this context is that I don't imagine researchers of the older style would be saying, here are gaps in health and social and environmental policy. Um, let's put that aside and think about what we could do about that as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it might be going, well, that there's a gap and so we need to focus solely on that. Yeah. Whereas um, – both in terms of having deliverables but also, you know, seeing this conversation about going beyond the economy in talking about how we talk about progress was going so that, you know, acknowledging that this is by no means a perfect index um, but it's a beginning of a conversation. It's giving us an insight that indicators in terms of how different states and territories are performing relative to one another both on these individual components of Mm -hmm. social progress but also social progress in general. And I guess like the, it is the kind of the zenith or the, the peak of the mountain for you, like the explanatory power of yeah. the SPI? It makes sense. Yeah. People get, there's a narrative to it. Yeah. People um, are really interested yeah. in it. Um, it's almost my litmus is that like, if I can kind of talk about it with enthusiasm with my family mm. and they're like, interested by it, not just the kind of, oh, we're proud of you, but like... Yeah, that's, that's what of, I get from my family, the latter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's great. That's yeah, great. But like, podcast, that's great. Yeah, but when they're actually asking yeah. questions to that you can see that they're understanding. Yeah. Um, and like Zan's grandmother, bless her, like Oma, she's going to listen to this. Oh, um, Yeah, shout out to Oma. But she will like engage in that stuff and she will ask questions. Grandparents and are really good at listening so, and engaging. So uh, underrated resource for all of this stuff. Oh my gosh, so much. And I think it's, you know, they've got a bit more time. L- Louise's like grandmother, Marie straight out of Poland, shout out, yeah. um, not with us anymore, but wonderful person, um, would ask the best questions about everything. Exactly. She would, we'd go over to her house. Yeah. She would have 
Louise's um, latest um, publications on oh. the table, having read it or being sent clippings of the PA, uh, the PDFs, so and good. she would ask questions. So yeah. why is this study different? Like questions that the parents or friends or me weren't asking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just that that deep engagement mm. means so much. I think, like especially when you're a PhD student, yeah. it, can, it can be a bit isolating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so where to, like, how has the SPI and your work landed? Is it being used? Because I know that's mm. very important. Mm. Um, is it sort of changing or useful in policy conversations? Yep. And what is the next sort of step for you in that work? Yeah, good questions. Um, so we were really fortunate um, to be able to launch the SPI um, at Parliament House in 2020. Um, and it was like, I guess, an interesting time where, policy priorities or focuses were rapidly changing. Oh, yeah. Um, but towards the end of 2020, I Which did, month was it, sorry? It was February, oh, end of February. My Lord. Yeah, yep. so it was like right on the cusp of COVID and sort of bushfires were yep. also taking up a lot time. of attention. Wonderful time. Oh, my gosh. But, um, you know, super grateful that we had that opportunity. Um, it was this event that was like chaired by Adam Bant and um, Andrew Lee. Oh, and you just name my like rock stars. The people, yeah. right? And Good so, folk. yeah, and like people that engage with this stuff and think about it. And mm. so, uh, towards the end of 2020, I was able to talk one on one with a number of MPs or their advisors about the SPI. And because it was just at that um, federal level, it was really kind of talking to federal MPs there. And, um, you know, so it was kind of saying, here's a new way to be thinking about progress. Um, I bet you Andrew Lee was all over it. He, Yeah, but it, it's also like he's great in that he's like, but here's my additional thoughts. So he's got a, a, extra stuff to yeah, add to I, it. I've also written three books on this. so Absolutely, he's, yeah. He's amazing. He, he's he's uh, quite the rock star. Also, I ran a marathon this morning. No, no, I didn't actually. Oh, would, he would, yeah, Andrew yeah, would. yeah. And actually like composed my next well. book proposal. You know he's a sub-elite marathon runner. no. <sighs> Yeah, no. Just, it's not enough to just be an MP and a great author. I've got to get him no. to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, sorry, please go on. His hype, man. Uh, but look, it was it was good to kind of be putting it on the radar of of people that are making decisions as a way of kind of um, presenting a new narrative. Um, and but it was also recognizing that at this stage, the SPI was like quite new in terms of what data we're actually able to include. I think. Um, a national SPI will only be sort of the most valuable, the most influential once we can get to kind of that local government area level yes. of granularity yeah. across all of Australia. So that's the mission is to get to that granularity. That is the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. And then yeah. we will have apples and apples to some degree. To some degree, yeah. And, and yeah. sorry, go on. Oh, that's right. Um, so, like, I've got a really cool opportunity that I'm, I'm super grateful for to actually be developing a social progress index for New South Wales. That's oh. about to kick off. Yeah, so we please can, do Victoria. Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. It's like you do New South Wales, and then hopefully Victoria watches and and, and gets. But, if, from but there. If, if we do worse, we'll just revert back to the usual Sydney, Melbourne. Ah, oh, that just you exactly. Know, they're punching down on us as usual. <laughs> well, I think that's the the nice thing is that like when you're developing, I guess what we would call like a sub sub state SPI is your indicators are going to be different because of what data is available. So there's like, you know, if we were to do Victoria, for example, we could include those environmental indicators that we couldn't include at the national level because it's being collected within Victoria. But that would still allow you to compare to New South Wales and overall No, no. So it's sub-state. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But it, the hope is is that, like, you know, we do New South Wales, maybe we collect some new indicators. Yeah. If we do it with Victoria, we say, why don't we use those same indicators? Okay, this is fantastic. So this is where the policy and advocacy element comes yeah. into what you do, which is sort of it is not just the research, but it's implementing a change agenda. Yeah, absolutely. And having a long-term plan and I think, you know, recognising it's not going to change all at once. Um, but, you know, the hope is that if we can get a, a New South Wales social progress index that allows us to compare Byron Shire to Randwick Council, which is where I moved from last year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you can understand then um, both relative in their sort of gross state product, which is like the kind of more localised version of GDP. Um, you can get an understanding of like whether Byron is performing within the expected range or better or worse, and and that helps you kind of identify where your policy opportunities I wonder, and priorities um, are. I wonder what the net impact of all the influences in Byron is, is overall. Oh my gosh, I've just finished up a project with them, um, <laughs> and uh, I have a lot of love for the Byron Shire, but yeah, just the influences. Sorry, and, I had to slip it in. Um, yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know why. No, it's it's so funny though because it's like <laughs> the the Byron that we see is like the the trope or the stereotype. Stereotype versus like Byron yeah. as a reality is so different, right? I, I we used to love going to Byron like every yeah. year or two, just enjoying it, um, and just not as influences by the way, just as regular folk. Yeah, um, and they all yeah, start just, that way. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Um, yeah, and like social progress index. So is it being used by other countries? Yeah. So it's actually it was developed um, in America by the Social Progress Imperative. So it's a global nonprofit, and so it started out as like each year they update it globally. Um, so you can see how different countries are comparing to one another. How, straight how many countries can you compare in this um, currently? So it includes like 169 oh, or something, so a lot. It's amazing. Yeah, which is really cool. So it's quite a robust, yeah. globally used yeah, tool. Yeah, absolutely. And then they started going subnationally. So um, there's a few different ways that they've developed it. So um, a lot of um, South American countries have used it. Um, you can even go like sort of there's the borough of Barkingham and Dagenham in um, London yeah, who have like developed it and use that and use their kind of data and analytics in a so different way. So it's a open source in it? Is so it much. Of, okay, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so let me just take a, a punt, we'll yeah. play a game. Let me guess who's doing the best in the SPI um, at the moment. Globally? Glo- yep. Globally and then let's do it by region okay. just, just for fun. Okay. And this will not be fun for anyone else other than us. <laughs> we'll just embark on our because we're the only ones here right now. Um, Costa Rica, top of the of the continent. Uh, so they haven't done – yeah, okay. So let's go global. Okay, global. Yeah. Costa Rica? <laughs> no. Chile? No. Ecuador? You're, th- you're thinking South America still. Oh, just because so much I've heard about Central American right. countries getting some of this stuff right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, let's let's think about it in global terms. Is it one of the Scandies? Has yeah. to be. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's, um, it's got to be Finland. Norway. Close. <sighs> Damn. Yeah. Good friend of mine moved from Australia to Norway and I was like, well, you can't move anywhere else now because yeah. like, you've reached the top of the SPI. Is it what it's all it's cracked up to be? Like has the experience matched the SPI? Just um, like an anecdotal. Yeah. I think it's it's really funny where it is that. Um, Do you have to grow up there and live there your whole life to understand how lucky you are maybe? Maybe. And I think it's also that kind of the the lived impact of kind of having like a really high tax rate and things like that to kind of like create equity. I think for someone that is coming from a country that maybe that doesn't privilege that as much is quite a shock. Yeah. I mean, like you can imagine the American response to uh, high uniform high taxes. I know, I know. (laughs) So, yeah. I guess, and so I guess that's like kind of where 
the Gini coefficient's also interesting. Yeah. Do you kind of play with that a bit? Um, not so much, mainly because I don't totally understand it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it, it is... Uh, it's it just like a different source of information. It's absolutely. interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. just as a measure of like societal inequality. Yeah, you know? exactly. And I think that is... I think it's it's really always really interesting to kind of look at what are the assumptions that go in with that and yeah. how is it that we're defining inequality. Yeah. And that's something I try to do, like be really, I guess, intentional about with the social progress index is recognizing that I'm bringing my own kind of experiences, my own expectations and beliefs around like what progress looks like um, and my own interpretations. And yeah. I think that's where the consultation piece is really important. But I know that there's still like a lot of work that needs to happen and I want to kind of keep doing where we're updating the national one at the moment. And so like what are the what are the opportunities to be engaging with um particularly for me I'm thinking from like a racial lens, um, First Nations communities, but also other like non-white communities in terms of understanding things like personal rights and freedom of choice, um yep. community like belonging, health and wellness and things like that. So part of that is limited by like how it is that we actually collect data. Um, but there's also that kind of needing to keep myself open to that critique or those questions. From your work, um, are there a few jurisdictions or regions that interest you the most because um, either difficulty of measurement, yeah. uh, uniquely kind of high or, yeah. you know, trending up that way, Yeah, um, areas of great progress? Yeah. So in the Australian one, um, ACT came first, which is probably not a surprise. No. I think, um, you know, partly because it's a small jurisdiction, um, and then the one that was really difficult, um, I guess kind of felt both, both like philosophically and then methodologically as well was how it was that we managed particularly around the Northern Territory. Yes. So it's hard to kind of, it's, it's a tricky, uh, balance of how it is that you manage the data and recognizing that there is a lot of inequality and, you know, Northern Territory across the number of years that we calculated, the SPI came eighth every time. And there were a number of indicators that we actually had to cap and kind of, I guess, um, change what the outer limits were in terms of calculating, you know, and normalizing these different data sets against each other across states and territories, just because the Northern Territory was so far out. Yeah. If we were to include it's like those an outlier jurisdiction so much. Yeah. And so if we were including that, then it would like cluster all the other states and territories together yep. and it would hard. We shouldn't hard. pile on too hard. The NT news is always a great read. <laughs> <laughs> I have been quoted in the NT News, but I don't know if I'm if I'm keen on it. But I think the the interesting thing and what I really like about the Social Progress Index is it's not an in, it's not a number that is reflective of how progressive the people are. It's a reflection of how um, appropriate the policies and programs are. Yes, yes, and, and that's that is some of the, the fidelity and purity that I love about it. Actually, that yeah. human centered kind of. You know, are the policy settings enabling exactly human progress the right way? Exactly, and I think that kind of really calls into question um, and would indicate to me that the ways in which policies or programs are being determined in the Northern Territory aren't working. Yes. So, you know, what are you doing about actually kind of having genuine um, self determination for remote communities, mm. um, and in terms of like understanding what access to health and wellness looks like? Um, and then, uh, you know, I think it's not a surprise, but we have a lot of kind of very colonial institutions that will come in and try and fix these communities, oh, yeah, right, yeah. rather than actually kind of providing any sense of um, ownership. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's like definitely 
social problems in the Northern Territory, but I think um, what something like the Social Progress Index, the danger of it I see is that it can be used to kind of justify um, racist kind of interpretations, understandings of like, you know, what the Northern Territory looks like. But I think it's really important to just keep pulling it back to being like, the scores that we're seeing are a consequence of human decisions. Yes. And, um, you know, the, the, the ways in which policies and programs are playing out are privileging particular groups um, or they're not kind of taking in the, the contextual demands or... Yeah, and, and, it, yeah. and all of this work has to be about recognising that policies have unintended consequences and your work is going a large Absolutely. way to sort of recognising. Yeah, yeah. And I think, either mistargeted or unintended consequences. Yeah, positive and negative impact. And yes. I think that's the other nice thing about the Social Progress Index is that when you're calculating it, um, you know, you've, you've got like the individual components but also like the overall social progress score is reliant on all of those components increasing. So how, this is just an aside question. Mm. Like how do you think about the robustness of the SPI versus other measures that have been attempted sort of in that kind of space? Obviously I'm going to love the SPI till I die. Yeah, that's why I'm asking <laughs> that. Um, I also write or die with the SPI, but I'm just curious, um, you know, like are there other things that were c- comparison or competitor measures that yeah. are, you've either discounted or kind of don't mind but haven't used yeah look i think there's like a lot a number of um there have been many attempts to come up with these many attempts yeah and like you know the happiness index and things like that that's bullshit sorry (laughs) well it's you know how how you measure happiness (laughs) but it's yeah i think it's kind of like why you why are you creating it why are you putting your effort and energy into it so i think a lot of this stuff is also just about like um asking the right questions yeah Absolutely. You know, if I ask you about happiness and you believe that happiness is the right thing to measure, then it's the most valid tool, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when you invest enough time and energy into kind of like creating something, you're going to, like, I think it's on you to defend it as well. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But um, I think something like the SPI um, both has the the rigor of the methodology in terms of like the the data that you're using and how it's cal- calculated and things like that. But it's also got the, um, I would almost say like the content validity and the face validity of, you know, people understand it as a concept. Even if you're not using the numbers, something like the framework um, can be really useful for breaking down some of the silos that I think we can see um, particularly around like what we call like wicked social problems. So like around yes. housing and homelessness or yeah. drug and alcohol use. Um, you know, if we're thinking about homelessness, right, and thinking about that aligned with the social progress index, you would put it squarely in shelter. But there's also elements on it that are related to personal safety. It's about personal freedom and choice. It's health and wellness. And so what that actually kind of means then is that if you're you're an organisation or you're a group that cares about housing and homelessness, you're also caring about these other issues too. And so how can you connect with other, um, whether it's like, academics, if it's policy areas, advocacy, not-for-profits, you know, it might be another group that is focused on personal safety, such as, you know, um, family violence, right? But, you know, that's going to be implicitly tied to things like housing and homelessness. And so you're actually recognising that, you know, when you're trying to focus on something like homelessness as a social issue, you're actually connecting with all these other different Yes, nothing exists in isolation. Exactly. And um, so how can you get those different groups talking together yeah, yep. and seeing themselves as like working towards a larger goal that's rather than just like eradicating homelessness, you're going, okay, so what are the kind of the 
what are the drivers of it? What are the kind of the risk factors? Yeah. What are the policy mechanisms that increase or decrease homelessness? Yeah. And how does that relate to other kind of social issues that we care about? Yeah, that's a really interesting way to frame it, actually. Um, so much more to talk about yeah. for limited time and busy days. Absolutely. Um, I think we need a part two, or at least um, we should get your colleague um, Rose to talk about uh, ampl- Amplify as the, the next CSI guest. Yeah. You must be the most um, overrepresented um, organisation in the sample of Humans of Purpose. <laughs> this is what, episodes. number three? Yeah. We had Joe. Oh, yeah. Uh, Joe, Gemma. Christian? Um, yeah, Christian. Yeah. Yep. Um, yourself. Jerry. Uh, Jerry. Yep. Jerry's, Jerry's not with us anymore, but was with CSA at the time. Jerry, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So that's five. Gosh. So if we go to six, six out of 253, you're probably better skilled in maths than I am, but uh, that's a lot. <laughs> it's pretty it's a good, lot. yeah. yeah, yeah. represented. Look, I think it's there's such a nice um, alignment there, there and, and it is nice yeah. kind of looking through your past guests as well and, like, recognising a bunch of names yeah. either, like, working with or... That's why I do it, so I can get more of you. I just, I just think, like, critical maths, if I get more than five, you'll all hopefully come on without asking too many questions. Yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> well, and I think it's the, the connector value of what you do here as well in terms of, like... You know, there's people that I've listened to on the podcast that I'm going to be reaching out to. Oh, now really? As well. Yeah, that's fantastic. always that's yeah. always encouraging to hear because you know we're, that's that's the goal at the end of the yeah. day is to enable um, connection um, between people who care about things. Yeah. Together, Just in general. Yeah, in general. People who care about things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people who care about the important things. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for being with me. How Loved can, it. How can people sort of connect with you and learn more about your work? I'm sure there are a lot of questions that are going to come up about um, everything, Centre for Social Impact, Social Progress Index, yeah. um, like research. Twitter or LinkedIn is mm-hmm. probably the best for me personally. Yeah. Um, but also Centre for Social Impact is quite active on um, both Twitter and LinkedIn as well um, and our website. Um, and so my contact details are on the CSI website. Should we hit up your research gate as well, just do a cheeky uh, impact? Factor? I have not done research gate in a while. Um, <laughs> is it outdated now? Is like a, what academics use as the kind of social network? Is there one? Yeah, I'm trying to think now. Like research gate is probably the one that gets used. If I want to creep on like a social um, equity or inequality researcher, yeah, like, and just sort of test their academic credentials, like how do you do that? Probably Google Scholar mm. or Web of Science. Okay. Uh, if you're kind of like wanting to look at sort of how many journal articles they're published and whether yeah. whether they're good. But yeah. honestly, it's I'm like... Li- I'm not going to do any of this, so I don't know why I'm asking. Look, go on their Twitter and see how Twitter. it is. Twitter. That, that is probably where I would look is... Um, I actually... I read the conversation and yeah. I think that's a good measure of sort of are people... Are pe- are the right people's research making it there? Yeah. And if it is, that's interesting to me. Yeah. And that's a, I know that's not a great method, but comparing that and Twitter yeah. and then maybe the university page. Yeah. Work. Yeah. And I think one thing that I try to do now, I haven't had a paper come out in a while and that's okay, Yeah. but like is to try and go if I'm – if I'm tweeting about a new paper that's come out, I'm not just saying new paper up. I'm going kind of like, what is it that we did? What's the main finding and why is this important? Yeah. And doing it in language that is both like accessible and like doesn't take myself too seriously. Ooh, I love that. Yeah. So um, that's, that's my Twitter. Thank you for being here. This is awesome. It's been great. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. 
If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.